Well, on this Palm Sunday, we want to uh, take a look um, at the cross, and this fits in perfectly with our series in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to talk about the cross this morning. Now, you know that there are certain things that you are focused on intently in life, right? For instance, think about this tennis player. Anybody know who this is? Yep, everybody knows who this is. Now, look at his eyes and look at that ball. Rafael Nadal is not thinking about his lunch, his Spotify account, He's not thinking about his Twitter feed. He's thinking about one thing, and that one thing is a tennis ball that is coming over the, 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 the net at 130 miles an hour. And because he's used to doing this, he knows that if he keeps his eye on the ball, he can not only hit it, which I couldn't at 130 miles an hour, but he can place that shot strategically in the opposite court. And he's focused on one thing and one thing only and that is a tennis ball. Now, I want, you to, I want to show you something else or someone else that's also focused on a tennis ball. Look at this picture. <laughs> that dog is focused on one thing, that tennis ball. Those of you who have dogs know what this is, what this is like. They're not thinking about their next lunch. They're not thinking about their next treat. They're thinking about one thing, and that is getting that tennis ball in their mouth. I love this picture here because this dog is, is like seriously like, I don't know, like <clears throat> Zach Elliott or something, you know, just focused on that, focused on that ball. In fact, um, dogs are so focused on balls that some ingenious person came up with a tennis ball selfie stick so that dogs will stare at the camera, <laughs> which is a genius thing to do. Sometimes in life, you've got to be focused on one thing and one thing only. Here is a famous restaurant in Paris overlooking the Notre Dame Cathedral. It's called Tour, Tour d'Argent. I've not been there, but people who have been there have told me that the wait staff is unusually intently focused on you, the, the dining customer. And they're looking at your eyes to see if you're pleased. They're looking at where you're where you're looking for plates and things like that, and they're instantly there if they see you looking at a certain direction. All I'm saying is this. Sometimes in life, you got to be focused on one thing and one thing only. And as a follower of Jesus, that thing for us is the cross. The cross is that one dominating thing in life that God wants us to be, to be focused on. In the New Testament, we've got four Gospels that give us the story about the cross, but these four Gospel writers have different personalities and different writing styles, and each of the four writers has a particular focus on the cross, and John's focus is really fascinating, because what he wants us to do is cast our eyes back and forth from the cross to the people around the cross, back to the cross to the people around the cross. And the question is, what would we do had we been there? So let's, let's look at, John, at, at John's story, the crucifixion, and John's got this very specific strategy, and again, here's, here's his strategy. He first is going to show us the cross, then the people around the cross. He's going to take us back to the cross, then we're going to see people around the cross again. That's how he 
structures and he tells us the story. And he does that, again, so that we ask ourselves the question, what will we do if we were there? So phase one is the, is, is the cross. And here's how it begins. Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. Now I will tell you that a world of hurt is wrapped up in those four words like you can't believe. The Greek phrase, they took him, they took him, there it is in that third line, they took him, is a very vivid visual phrase. It's the idea that they, they grabbed him they tackled him, they grabbed him, and they shoved him, and they pushed him. It's a violent phrase. And now Jesus is going to go through everything that was prescribed by the cross. Victims of crucifixion were taken to the Antonio courtyard. They were taken to a pole in, in the middle and the pole was about the size of a telephone pole, a diameter of a telephone pole rising six feet high. There was a band of iron around the top. There were handcuffs, and your hands were clipped into those handcuffs. And then two Roman soldiers named lictors would take the Roman flagrum, and they would trade hits, one on one side, one on the other side. And they went, did this over and over and over again, dozens upon dozens, until your back was just a bloody mess. <clears throat> the goal was to inflict maximum carnage without yet killing the criminal. When they figured Jesus had had enough, the lictor stopped and the guards put the clothes back on him. And you can imagine they didn't do this gently. They did this roughly, rudely, trying to harm Jesus and the pain that he was encountering on his back, having that flare up. From the corner of the courtyard, a Roman soldier grabbed the crossbar of the cross. The crosses in the ancient world were shaped like T's. And they would take up this Roman crossbar weighing 110 pounds, and they would put it on the nape of the victim's neck, and they would walk. And they would walk from the Antonio Fortress to the place of the crucifixion. By 8.30 in the morning, lots and lots of people were lining that road. And some were Jesus' friends, some were Jesus' enemies, but there was a crowd that was packed by the side of that road. Remember that passage I just read about the triumphal entry? Lots and lots of people were there at the triumphal entry. Well, guess what? Lots and lots of people are there as he's carrying his cross toward the place of the crucifixion. At some point, Jesus stumbles. He falls. The Roman soldiers grab a guy at random out of the crowd. It's Simon from the North African country of Cyrene. They grab him. They put the Roman crossbar on him. Simon of Cyrene is probably dressed very well. He's a wealthy man coming from a wealthy, prosperous place in North Africa. The bloody crossbar is put on his clothes now. Now he's forced to accompany Jesus to the cross. Soon Jesus arrives at the site uh, called Golgotha, and uh, they grab, the Roman soldiers grab the crossbar from Jesus, fling it to the ground, thrust Jesus to the ground, taking his clothes off of him, and they begin pounding the nails into his, into his wrists. They did this through the wrists, through the radial and the ulnar bones. 
And then using special lifters, they lifted up the dangling body of Jesus up onto the vertical section of the cross, laying it down into the notch, and then quickly pounding his feet into the wood. And there he hangs. There he hangs. The criminals beside him are hurling insults at him, at least at first. The crowds below him are mocking him. And it seems as if God above has rejected him. And Jesus literally hangs as if he is the reject of all of heaven and earth. That's part one of the event. He's flogged, he's led to the cross, and he's, he's, he's there, hanging, suffering. Now John switches scenes to phase two. It's the people around the cross. And he's going to give us some snapshots of what's going on around the cross. And the snapshots are surprising. The first snapshot is the criminals on either side. We don't know exactly when they got there or how, but it seems as if they're there when Jesus arrives. Now, Luke tells us a lot more about these guys, but the point here from John's standpoint is that they're there. They're there. And I will tell you that John's version of this has comforted a lot of people down through the ages because those criminals in John, in a way, represent us. In a way, they represent us. We, we suffer, we cry out, where are you, Lord, in my suffering? And what this version of the story seems to indicate is that Jesus is there in the midst of our suffering with us, loving us. His presence is there ministering His grace to us. The fact that Jesus suffered with criminals has been a great comfort to a lot of people down through the ages because He knows suffering. And when we're in pain, He knows what that pain is like. He knows what it's like to suffer, and He can come to us in that pain. The second snapshot is the religious leaders who are arguing with Pontius Pilate, and they're arguing over the sign that was placed above the cross. Here's a, a replica of that sign. And it's really interesting that this, uh, these signs were, were placed over a lot of different, different crosses in the ancient world. If you, if you committed a crime, the nature of the crime was put above the, above the cross. So you could have insurrection bribery, murder, and so on and so forth. Well, his sign reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Is there a crime there? No. Was, was that a crime under Roman law? No, it was not a crime under Roman law. But this is the, the sign that's above there. And in a way, what Pilate is doing is he's acting prophetically. Doesn't mean to, but in a way, in, in Pilate's actions, he's acting Prophetically, Jesus is the man from Nazareth as a man. And as God, Jesus is king. Jesus is the God-man. Pilate prophetically places something on the cross that's amazing. And you can imagine that people who saw that would go, huh, there's no crime there. But that guy, seriously, that guy is the king of the Jews. And some embrace that. And then we get to, by the way, they, they wanted Pilate to change that, right? They, they, they did not like it that Pilate put that on there. So the chief priests are saying, oh, change that. Pilate says, no way. What I've written, I've written. Deal with it. Then we come to a third snapshot. 
The soldiers below are gambling for Jesus' clothing. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was a seamless robe woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. You know, when, when a person is in the process of dying, you would hope that the people around the dying person would say things about their life to emphasize that person's significance. I've talked to a good number of people who were around a dying loved one. And in the process of that person dying, they said honoring things to that person. They talked about the significance of their life. They talked about the legacy that they're leaving. It was all about the significance of the life that they lived. But that's not happening here. The people who are guarding Jesus are playing a dice game. They're playing a dice game for a seamless robe. And Jesus is there listening to them laughing and, and being completely oblivious to the significance of his death and the things that he's doing. And yet, John tells us that in the eternal realm, there was something very significant going on. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. So the idea was, it was insignificant in the temporal, visual, worldly realm, but it was enormously significant in the invisible, eternal realm. Something is happening in the eternal realm that is massively significant. And John wants to point this, point this out. Let me get another snapshot. There's an audience that is observing from afar, and the audience is composed of four notable women, Jesus' mother, Jesus' aunt, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And it says many more. Now, the reason why they're, they're far off is that victims of crucifixion were, were crucified naked. There, were no, there was nothing on. And the women are there at a respectful distance from the one that they, they loved. What I find interesting about, about this is that uh, he's saying something, um, I think, about discipleship. Remember, Jesus had said to the disciples, the 12, hey, take up your crosses and follow me. Did any of them do that? Well, John is there. We'll see that in a second. But where, where are the rest? It appears they're not even there. So they didn't pick up their crosses and follow Jesus to the cross, metaphorically. They, they didn't do that. They're gone. They're AWOL. Who are the people who show up at the cross? Well, you remember in Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3, Jesus has a good number of female followers. And it could be that there were as many as 12. 12 disciples, they're the 12, and maybe up to 12 female followers. And where, where are his official disciples, the 12? They're, they're gone except for John. But the female followers are there, including Jesus' mom. And it's saying something about discipleship. Discipleship is for everybody. You know, the w women in the ancient world were not highly regarded in terms of their authority or their ability to do ministry. And Jesus completely upends that in his ministry. And I, what I think John is manifesting here is that discipleship is, is for everybody. There's no automatic place of status in the kingdom. It's for male, female, it's for people who are 
vastly different in terms of their orientation and thought process. And then we get a final snapshot. And the final snapshot is that Jesus and his mom have a very significant conversation. I love it that Jesus wants to take care of his mom and his dying, his dying few minutes. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, okay, that disciple whom he loved is John, and John refers himself to himself that way in several different places in his gospel. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, the apostle John, uh, that's who that is, Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. That sounds like a strange way to talk to your mom. Woman, behold your son. But in the ancient world, um, people used that, that form of address in a way that was, that was common. Woman, behold your son. In other words, mom, mom, from now on, I want you to consider that, that John over here, one of my disciples, is part of the family. John, behold your mother. In other words, you guys are going to be family. John, take care of my mom. Mom, I want you to, I want you to be with John. He's taking care of his mom in the final moments of his life. Five snapshots. What is, what is John doing in these snapshots? He's inviting us to imagine ourselves being there. Who would we have been like? How would we have responded? Like the chief priests and scribes, like the soldiers, trivializing everything? How would we have responded? John's inviting us to consider our response to to the cross. Now, remember, Jesus takes us back, or John takes us back to the cross. We go from the cross to the people. Now we're back, we're back to the cross. And now John shows us the, the statements that Jesus makes in the cross. Jesus made seven statements in the cross. And we're going to look at those this coming Friday at our Good Friday service. But John records two of these statements. And the first statement Jesus makes is Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst, I thirst. Uh, You can imagine that a victim of crucifixion who's lost all that blood and all that fluid would be insanely thirsty. Remember reading recently a story about the Civil War and some of the Civil War Uh, Victims would be lying on the battlefield, losing blood, oozing fluid. And the thing that would happen when people like D.L. Moody, who came to provide help on the battlefield, they, I want water. Give me water. I'm thirsty. Jesus had to have been insatiably thirsty. But there's something else happening because this is comes from an Old Testament, Old Testament scripture. And the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 69, 21, would suggest that this is not just physical thirst, but it is a spiritual thirst, a thirsting for the Father, a thirsting for reconnection with the Lord of, Lord of Lords. He's thirsting for Him. And then he says, John 19, 29, 30, um, a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch held it to his mouth. They're mocking Jesus with this. They're mocking him. He said, it is finished. It is finished. That, that's uh, statement number two. Then Jesus bowed his head and gave up, gave up his spirit. It is finished. Well, 
as you probably know, the Greek word is one word, and it's the word tetelestai. And that word means paid in full. He's talking about the effects of his death on the cross. I've paid in full for the sins of the world. I've paid in full the debt that people owe to a holy, holy father. It's a victory cry. But what happens after the victory cry? He slumps into death. Doesn't that sound kind of, kind of strange? Like in a victory cry, like something happens in the victory cry. He dies. Well, the victory celebration is going to happen three days later at the empty tomb, at his resurrection, at his restoration of life. But right now, he slumps over and into death. And so now we go back to the people around the cross. And what happens there? Well, we have three responses to the body. How do you respond to the body of Jesus on the cross? What, what, do, what do you do? Well, the most obvious thing to do would be to pull the body down and put it into a mass grave. Well, where would that mass grave be? Well, most likely in the first century, that mass grave would have been the Valley of Hinnom. It would have been Gehenna. Gehenna was the word that was often used for, for hell in the terminology of Jesus in the Gospels. That's where the body would have gone. What would he do with the body of Jesus? Well, there were three options. The Jews want to mutilate it. What they want to do is they want to break, they want to break the legs so that the body will slump down and Jesus would then suffocate. Let's hasten the death of Jesus. Come on, man. The Sabbath is coming. We don't want this guy on the cross. We don't want people who are there for the Passover celebration to see this guy on the cross and read the King of the Jews. We don't want that. That's inconvenient for us. Let's break the legs. Let's mutilate the body. Let's get him to die and get him off there. That's what they want to do. Well, the, the Romans want to, they're going to test it. So, um, Pontius Pilate gives an order, and the, and the order is to figure out whether Jesus is dead or not. So the soldier goes, and he goes to the body, looks at the body, yep, it's dead, but sure enough, just to test it, he jabs his spear in his side, presumably the spear goes through the ribs, it punctuates, ribs, it punctuates the pericardium, and blood and water flow out. Now, that happened physically, but John puts this into his gospel perhaps as a reminder that Jesus is the source of life. Remember in John chapter 7, you know, Jesus said, you know, out of his innermost body will flow rivers of living water. What happens when Jesus dies? The soldier unwittingly punctures the body and out comes a flow of water, suggesting that the death of Christ is where that source of life and living water will come from. And in any event, the soldier stabs and Jesus, Jesus dies. Now, the disciples, though, they honor the body. They honor the body. Because two members, members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, have become his secret disciples. Nicodemus, who was the teacher in Joseph of Arimathea, 
And Joseph makes a request of Pilate. These guys would not have liked each other. Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea would not have been good friends, but they did business together. So Joseph comes into Pilate, say, Pilate, I want the body of Jesus. I want the body. And so um, Joseph gives the body. And Joseph offers to take the body and bury it in his own personal family tomb. Nicodemus joins him with, with spices. And they privately wash the body in violation of Old Testament law, which would have made them ritually unclean, but they didn't care at that point. They wash the body and they place it in Joseph, Joseph's personal personal burial tomb and the way tomb. And the way John writes this, there's just this note of both serenity and and sadness. Serenity. It's quiet. It's a garden tomb. Sadness. What happened? The guy who preached so powerfully. What happened? What was it that we that we believed in? Well, there the deed is done. That stone is rolled into place. A cord is is around that stone. The deed is done. The Sabbath has begun. And I will tell you that as the as darkness descended and as these little olive lamps begin to twinkle all over Jerusalem. There was a spiritual heaviness over the whole city. The impression is people are thinking, what have we done? What have we done? Well, that's the story. There's the stone. And here's the idea. John, John's got a strategy. Strategies go to go from the cross to people, back to the cross, and then back to the people. And he does this because he wants us to do a gut check. If we had been there, what would we have done? So what John does is he shows us that there are, there are five enemies. We've got five enemies listed in this story. We've got Pontius Pilate. We've got the chief priests. We've got the Jewish commoners. We've got two criminals. We've got Roman soldiers. But we also have five friends. We have Jesus' mother. We have Jesus and the other female disciples. We have the the apostle John. We have Nicodemus who supplies the spices and Joseph of Arimathea who supplies the grave. Again, John is setting up a contrast. You're a friend. You're an enemy. You're a friend of the cross. You're an enemy of the cross. And what's interesting is that two interactions at the foot of the cross really stand out. And one of the interactions is what Jesus does with his mom and the apostle John. Remember what Jesus says, John, take care of my mom. Mom, I want you to live with John. He's going to take care of you. So the apostle John and Jesus' mom, what do they do? They receive ministry from Jesus. They receive ministry from him. What do they do at the cross? They receive ministry from the dying Christ. But then we also see something else with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They take a massive risk to go to Pilate and to identify with a man on the cross. For Joseph of Arimathea to say, I want the body of Jesus. I want to bury it in my tomb. 
is tantamount to him saying, I am identifying with that man who died on the cross. I want his body. I want it in my tomb. I'm identifying with the man on the cross. So with, with that in mind, we can, we can really conceptualize the main idea of the story. Genuine disciples identify with the man on the cross, and they receive his ongoing ministry. That's the idea. Genuine disciples identify with the man on the cross, and they receive his ongoing ministry. Now, this is not the only place in the New Testament that teaches this. Let, let me give you a catalog of other places where we see this. We see this Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That word means to see him, to contemplate him, to think about his ministry. It's a command to identify with the man on the cross. Here's another one. The other one is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, okay? That's seeing Jesus, seeing the unseen. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me on the cross. Again, Galatians 2.20 is an invitation to think about and identify with the man on the cross. Galatians 6.14, be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to, I to the world. This is a call to identify with the man on the cross. We see this in communion. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. He goes on to say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death. It's an invitation when you take communion to identify with the man on the cross. Another one. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Healed how? Healed in two ways. Number one, healed of our root problem, our sin problem. And secondly, as a result of that, periodically encountering his healing grace in an ongoing way throughout our Christian life. You are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is an invitation to identify with the man on the cross who healed us and continues to pour out his healing grace and his power. So genuine disciples make the cross the central focus of their lives. They identify with the man on the cross and they receive his ongoing ministry. What might happen if you did that? Well, I can tell you one thing that would happen is that you would experience continuous healing of guilt and shame. I keep reading all these statistics about people who encounter residual guilt and shame that causes all sorts of issues in their life. What does meditating on the cross do? It helps eradicate that existential sense of guilt and shame because the ontological guilt and shame is gone. Guilt and shame has been taken care of on the cross. You don't have to experience it anymore. Think about the impact of this. I don't know how many human beings have ever lived or ever will live, but let's assume it's 140 billion. I heard that as a statistic recently. Somebody was assessing that. 140 billion. I don't know where they got that. 
Jesus died for the sum total of all of their sins. Not just little sins, but big sins. Every bit of them. And not just the sins of the really good people like Mother Teresa, but the sins of the really bad people like Idi Amin and Joseph Stalin. The weight of that sin on him on the cross had to have been crushing beyond what we can possibly imagine. But when Jesus said, it is finished, it was really, really finished. And you now exist in a forgiven state. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's something to meditate on. But it begins by identifying with the man on the cross and receiving his ongoing ministry. Let's think about some takeaways. There are three ways that you can begin to do this. And the first way is the hardest way. It's the hardest way. The first way is you better prepare to embrace foolishness. You better be prepared to embrace foolishness. Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross seemed like foolishness in the first century, and I'll promise you, in the 21st century, the word of the cross to a lot of people seems like foolishness. And if you're going to meditate and receive ministry from the man on the cross, be prepared that some people will think you're an idiot for doing it. Some people will think you're crazy. Some people think you are hopelessly, ridiculously old-fashioned and and politically incorrect. Are you prepared for that? Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to embrace foolishness. Now, what I, what I love is the fact that some really good people in the past have embraced that foolishness. Here's a guy. Here's Romans 1 Corinthians 1.18. Here's a guy, uh, C.S. Lewis, Johann Sebastian Bach. Both these guys were unapologetically committed to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis uh, did not receive a series of professorships at Oxford University because he was politically incorrect at Oxford. And people felt like C.S. Lewis. He's a popularizer of Christian beliefs. Here's a guy who was fluent in multiple ancient languages, a guy who had a photographic memory, a guy who was off the charts, brilliant and smart, and he embraced the foolishness of the cross and he paid for it in his career. And I'm glad he did because his ministry has been massively more impactful than if he had gone the easy, politically correct route and been acceptable to the masses, the non-Christian masses. Here's Johann Sebastian Bach. What most people don't know about him is that he was not well regarded in the city of Leipzig. They thought he was kind of old-fashioned, kind of, kind of a strange guy. And yet, um, here's a guy who was, his popularity was waning back in, you know, 1750 or so, his popularity was, was really waning. Like, even his sons thought, oh, Dad, you are so old-fashioned. Like, you're creating all this Baroque music, and the new thing is Rococo and classical, and what are you doing? He unapologetically embraced Jesus. Now, guess who is the most popular composer in Japan? Johann Sebastian Bach. And Bach has had a tremendous resurgence in Japan with people listening to his uh, St. Matthew Passion. And Bach, from the grave, 
is leading people to Jesus. He embraced foolishness during his life. And now he's deeply impactful in his, in his death. You've got to embrace foolishness, but you don't embrace it to no count. You embrace it for the glory of God, knowing that God is going to do something in you and through you as you embrace foolishness and follow him no matter what the masses say. It means you may not be popular. It means you may not be trendy. It means you may not be chic and hip and cool. But you know what? That's part of the deal. Part of the deal. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is embrace a God-centered optimism. I say this because when Jesus says on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. When Jesus is saying this, he is crying out in pain, but Psalm 22, verse 1, Psalm 22 has two parts. The first part is pain. The second part is triumph. This first part is the tragedy of the cross. The second part is the triumph of, of resurrection. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out in pain, but because it's Psalm 22, there's a note of triumph. And the triumph is after pain comes resurrection. After the grave comes life. And so even on the cross, Jesus crying out in pain knows there is a resurrection future for him. And same thing is true with, true with us. When you embrace the cross, you have a God-centered optimism that life can get pretty, pretty quirky and weird and sometimes awful. And yet there's hope, and the hope comes about because we walk in newness of life. And the third takeaway is, man, we got to embrace kingdom. we got to embrace kingdom. What was on the sign? You know, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Okay, you live in the kingdom right now. Kingdom's coming, but you live in the kingdom right now. And that kingdom is the invisible spiritual presence that's always around you, next to you, in you. It flows through you, in Him. We live and move and have our being. You live in the kingdom right now. And it's easy to, to go throughout life on, like, turning off spiritual sensitivity. Like, I got, I got heaven. I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't really care about being spiritually sensitive between now and the time I go to heaven. And that's not the way to live. The way to live is to live in the kingdom, which means I'm turning on spiritual sensitivity, and every moment I'm walking in the kingdom presence and power of God because the man on the cross is the king of the Jews, but notice how many languages that's in. It's in the, th it's in the major langu international languages at the time. That means Jesus is king for everybody, king for the entire world. You're king, and you can walk in his kingdom presence right now. So back to the main idea. Genuine disciples identify with the man on the cross, and they receive his ongoing ministry. So, you know, there'll be times where we're, Cindy and I are sitting in our house and I pick up a tennis ball, and the dogs freak out. If you've got a dog, you know this. The dogs just freak out. They're jumping up and down. We have one of our dogs, Watson, spins around in circles, you know, as, he's, as we're headed out, out the door. They love the tennis ball. We need to have a focus, a central focus, an all-consuming focus, and that all-consuming focus in our lives has to be the cross. Amen. It has to be the cross.
Let's stand for our closing prayer.